listeners. I am Antea. And I'm Dasha. And welcome to Shelf Awareness, a podcast that discusses anything and everything about literature, films, music, and art. Welcome everyone to episode three of the Shelf Awareness podcast. Today we'll be doing a light or a brief sort of novel study of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Uh, Before we get into some of the details about the books and the characters and the themes, we'll be providing a little bit of of context about the author and the time period. So Oscar Wilde was an Irish writer, playwright, and poet. The Picture of Dorian Gray is his only novel, for which he received a lot of negative criticism. The novel was written during the Victorian era of England, um, a period characterized by sexual restraint, strict code of conduct, and a low tolerance for crime, meaning that many parts of the book, which was viewed as highly scandalous for many reasons, which you will soon become aware of, um, many parts of the book were censored by publishers. The principles in the novel were radical to the time period, and the novel was deemed as scandalous and even immoral, as Dorian, who is the main character, his search for pleasure directly contrasted those restrained morals. Um, The Victorian era believed that art should have sociopolitical value, and Wilde, the author, directly opposed this as seen in the quote that we provide as an example, where he says, all art is quite useless, quote unquote, making him an aestheticist or a believer that philosophy of art related to beauty, not to purpose. Which, to be honest, I find a little bit contradictory contradictory to what his book is trying, well, what his novel as what the message of his novel is, because he provides sort of this idea that we should not give into hedonistic pleasure because it's overall will corrupt our soul. And then at the same time, he says, just don't analyze it too much. I think overall, his whole agenda is just to be radical. Like whatever is going on in his society, he just feels constrained by it. So he's going to go against it in every way possible. Even Mm -hmm. if it's contradictory, he's going to be the two extremes as long as he's not in the middle. Right, and a lot of things about this novel were censored. A lot of aspects of it that were considered scandalous and immoral, including, let's say, sort of the hedonistic values, the homosexuality was also censored a little bit, but we won't get too much into that. But there was so much about this novel that was deemed scandalous, and he tried to go again, like he tried to just push it out there. That was the whole point of the novel, is just to have, to fire up these Victorian era people (laughs) who were all prim and proper in the petticoats and corsets. As we both know, the Victorian era is just, most of the people, especially the upper class, kind of like, put this facade on their identity when they were like uh, perfectionism, elitism and everything. When really in reality, they're, the elite, the wealthy class is just as fractured as anyone. Honestly, yes. You read any sort of Victorian era literature and the most interesting part is the internal struggle that these characters are going through. Like yes. the cognitive dissonance of who they are on the outside and what they're dealing with on the yes. inside. It's exactly. really fascinating. Exactly. And this is why there's... There's a lot of Victorian-era literature that is just so interesting, in my opinion, and this is one of them. And now, a brief summary. Um, Dorian Gray is the subject of a full-length portrait in oil by Basil Hallward, an artist impressed and infatuated by Dorian's beauty. He believes that Dorian's beauty is responsible for the new mood in his art as a painter. Through Basil, Dorian meets Lord Henry Watton. Watton. How do you say? Like cotton, but a W. Yes. (laughs) And he soon is enthralled by the 
the aristocrats and the hedonistic worldview, that beauty and sensual fulfillment are the only things worth pursuing in life. Newly understanding that his beauty will fade, Dorian expresses the desire to sell his soul to ensure that the picture, rather than he, will age and fade. The wish is granted, and Dorian pursues a libertine life of varied amoral experiences while staying young and beautiful and innocent. All the while, his portrait ages and records every true sin. Moving on to the character analysis. In my opinion, the characters are the most fascinating part of Wilde's novel. Let's start with Dorian himself then, shall we? Handsome, impressionable, and wealthy young gentleman, whose portrait the artist Basil Halward begins to paint because of that blossoming innocence and those angelic looks and his pure values. In other words, Dorian is a blank slate that has not been yet corrupted by the world. However, he begins to be tainted by Lord Henry, a hedonistic and pleasure-seeking man whose tendencies slowly begin to penetrate into Dorian's previously innocent being. I'm sorry to interrupt, but Lord Henry is just a really cynical man throughout the entire novel, and he has some very, um, let's say, some very different ideas from everyone else in the entire, in the entire like wealthy and elite class. He's kind of like that voice of, he just kind of wants to be the antagonist. Honestly, he back. is, I think, in my opinion, an expression of Wilde himself. Yes, exactly. But and like sort of like one personality of Wild. Yes. The the very radical side of Wild who just does not conform with society and lives totally amorally. It's true that you know this like this novel is actually partially autobiographical. Like there is a lot of like um well, I, I would say analysis saying that the characters represent parts of Wild and I can see how Lord Henry would kind of represent that part of like the radical and different statements and different perspectives and the pursuit of hedonism and all that. So yeah, continue. Yeah. So with Dorian, um, he begins to follow in his mentor's footsteps, caring nothing for morality of conventional society and having no remorse whatsoever for his horrible actions, which we won't go into partially because I don't remember. There's like a 15 page <laughs> description that honestly is endless. And I kind of skipped. It's, to a, be honest. it's a 15 page description of basically every single item that Dorian fell in love with and became infatuated with showing his obsession with like material culture and everything. But it's 15 pages long. It is dense in prose. I had to read it. I pushed myself to read it. And the only way I did it, should I explain? Go the, for only, it. the only way I did it was by reading it aloud in a British accent in my own room, like a crazy person. That's See, <laughs> the first two pages that I did read, all that was really coming at me is like, if I was a rich girl, no, 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 no. <laughs> He's literally just buying everything. If I had all the money in the world, that's that's a beautiful comparison. I never even thought of like, oh my, it is so annoying. He just he just keeps buying things. He has, you know, like there's a book that Lord Henry gives to him, and he buys that in different colors. Okay, and then, okay. And then he like he uses it whatever his mood is. He picks the different color that he likes. Isaiah, uh, calm down. We're gonna get there. Wait, actually. <laughs> So, Sorry. <laughs> meanwhile, his portrait shows the horrible corruption of his ways, which, juxta which juxtaposes clearly with his looks of childlike innocence, which he retains. Basil, however, recognizes what has become of his muse and prays for him. But, major spoiler alert, Dorian kills him because he can no longer accept a love so pure. 
Ultimately, he can't live with himself, stabs the portrait that reveals his ugly deeds, and dies with it. In other words, to make a long, long story short, um, Dorian is what I want to describe as a little bitch. That's what he is. <laughs> he's nothing else. He's an annoying, he's a self-centered uh, character that is just so influenced by um, sort of Lord Henry's cynicism and kind of immoral attitudes towards life and just like, the you know, just the superficiality of everything. I don't know. See, I never got as mad at Dorian as you seem to have. I don't know. I'm sorry. He killed I, someone. What do you I mean? don't know. I was very like sad. <laughs> what am I supposed to feel? But I never like hated him. There was something about him that is so I wouldn't say relatable. I, I was about to say if you were gonna say relatable. <laughs> no, it's just something that you see in society. He does represent some people, some values. He represents, I believe, like sort of the uh, the ability that youth has to be shaped, like any yes. young, any, any young person can how be just malleable. They are like how can easily be shaped by someone that you see as a mentor or as like someone that you ad- admire. Let's say so. It's I can see that yes, but also Dorian, <laughs> and it's is, also is just, like the yeah. extreme effects of letting yourself go completely. Like he com- he just with no consequences for his actions, since he does not change like visibly, mm-hmm. and since people still trust him, he basically, all restraint is let loose and he can do whatever he wants. And the effects of that are this is this complete moral degeneration. Exactly, and the thing is he, the all of his moral degeneration basically becomes reflected in the portrait and not it himself. So there's this connection that Wilde wants to make with corruption and then the physical appearance that's i think it's very interesting and that's such a like that's such a victorian um ideal because i don't there's something there's a trend with victorian literature that usually people who are ugly people who are like have animalistic characteristics like for instance big noses or something like that that was one example are let's say the evil characters there's a there's this trend it is the witches or whatever huge noses huge warts like Ugliness is associated with, with evil. With moral degeneration. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that that's something that is so prominent in modern literature, no. but it's definitely, I feel like that is some sort of social commentary. Fairy uh, tales, despite yeah. Despite him saying that his book isn't social commentary, I feel yeah. like that is social commentary towards Victorian ideals about beauty and, you know, the soul, I suppose. Which is so funny, too, because his book does have a great moral at the right, end. Exactly. Like, the, the moral is so clear, so, like, is Wilde this like amoral guy, or is he really trying to push like his morality? morality. Like, yeah, this like, left me so confused. I know because it's also the beginning, the entire beginning. The first thing that he gives us in this novel is sort of this pre- preface, right? Mm-hmm. That like, don't take this novel with like, don't. Oh, it's like art is what you make it, right? Yeah. So take what you want from it, which is, I guess. Main moral for so everything. I guess you can take oh the life of luxury is great, great. or you can take all oh, of your actions have consequences, consequences you will die a terrible death <laughs> it's just it was, you I, will suffer and he goes mad because of this portrait he goes absolutely insane he looks at it every day kind of like some days he's absolutely terrified at the the disgusting creature that he has become his soul has become because he looks pure and innocent still 
But, and some days he taunts it and he says, I'll do this and that and see what happens and experiment with it. Which, it's very interesting. Honestly, if you think about it, it's kind of a reflection of mental health. Like I guess the Victorian view <laughs> on mental health, right. because this is all going on inside of his head. He's got this like self-loathing yeah. and everything by the end, mm-hmm. he, he loses his mind. So it's interesting, interesting side note right there. Um, next, we're moving on to Basil Hallward, who is a talented, though somewhat conventionally-minded, painter. Unlike Lord Henry and Dorian, he believes that with art comes great morality or responsibility and serves as a moral compass throughout the entirety of the novel. He becomes unnaturally obsessed with Dorian, and Dorian kind of becomes his muse. Basil claims to have put a piece of his soul in Dorian's portrait, which frightens Dorian and ultimately leads him to become self-centered and realizing his beauty begins to overvalue that over his morality or personality. And Basil's commitment to Dorian is ultimately fatal. This is very relatable to me. Well, Basil was very relatable to me because I put pieces of my soul into other people and ultimately get backstabbed. What do you think, Dasha? <laughs> I think that is so sad. <laughs> and I'm so sorry. For, I cannot agree or say that it's relatable to me, but I'm so sorry oh for God. your loss. For my loss. For of your my, loss. Of my soul. For all the stabs you have in your back. All the stabs from other the people. blood loss. Yeah, exactly. I know. Did Basil... It's a pity because he's such a romantic person and he's just it's, he's so he's so gullible and he tries to help Dorian so much because Dorian is Dorian inspired him. Too. Honestly, I blame him for all of this. Basil, you blame Basil. Yes, I blame Basil. And I'm sorry because you and him clearly had an understanding. We, we, me and him were on the same wavelength. You were what connecting are you about? <laughs> But I blame him for all of this because when you listen to him talking in the novel, he is worshiping Dorian. He is making this innocent. Imagine if you were just an innocent child and suddenly you're told that you're just, you're gorgeous, you're beautiful, you are the reason a person lives and breathes how can you not suddenly begin to overvalue your own beauty and the effect it clearly has on people like you will manipulate people that's what you're training a person to do i okay as i agree with a part of that statement but i don't think that um, basil is to blame for dorian's ultimate corruption i think that that more has to do with lord henry okay maybe he's too dumb to actually yeah basil isn't necessarily an a witty person i don't want to say he's not intelligent because he he has like his artwork is like you know a sign of he just expresses himself in different ways exactly and i i feel bad for him he's such a no i pity him too but i think none of this would have happened without him because he was lord henry like connected to lord henry in the first place which of course oh yeah 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 i I forgot that he was friends they were introduced through basil but dorian would have been just well Somebody so else probably know, would have corrupted him. Yeah, how but. do we know that someone else wouldn't have corrupted Dorian? Like, But the story if, wouldn't be what it is. is the exactly. tragedy it is without Basil Howard. Next, we'll be moving on to Lord Henry. And I can't say his last name because <laughs> I can't pronounce it for some reason. Watton. So, Cotton with a W. Watton. 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 I British. Watton. Yes. Did I say that right? Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> He's a relatively static, though initially fascinating character who doesn't go through any major changes throughout the novel as opposed to Dorian's radical transformation. He's a self-proclaimed hedonist who advocates for the equal pursuit of both moral and immoral experiences, yet most of this is just theory because he himself lives a very moral life in polite London society adhering to the morals of Victorian society. 
This shows a projection of the life he wishes he could live, but really is hypocritical because Dorian, as a young and impressionable person, takes those musings literally. Exactly. And it shows kind of that, you know, Lord Henry just wants this, like, advocates for this life of hedonism and sort of the pursuit of uh, pleasurable activity but doesn't do it himself and dorian takes it quite seriously and he doesn't take into account the repercussions of that kind of life because he's never experienced exactly it. it's all theory he's like oh yeah it would be so great to just do whatever i want but you know when you've mm -hmm. killed someone mm -hmm. there's gonna be a real negative consequence that to that. it shows that he well lord henry doesn't quite know or quite understand the human soul as much as he claims that he does so he doesn't practice what he preaches basically and he's also i feel like Immoral is different from amoral. Exactly. Amoral is a complete lack of understanding, which mm -hmm. is the per point to which Dorian gets to when mm -hmm. he can't even discern between what is right, right and what is wrong. Exactly. While Watson, our dear friend, <laughs> probably understands what's right and what's wrong, but just sees the, some sort of merit in trying both. Exactly. Or he, or he feels like he gets a sort of power in saying that this is how yeah. life should be lived, but doesn't take the initiative to even attempt this kind of lifestyle that he's trying to I think encourage. he likes the power that he feels from seeing himself as a mentor he and like someone who shapes this young, impressionable he's mind. He's so in love with this idea of being his mentor. It's stated so many times. He's like, oh, I'm so fascinated by the fact that Dorian listens to me so much and is taking my ideas so literally. Honestly, I think he, I don't know if it's willing, if it's like something he is doing intentionally, but he's manipulating and ultimately ruins Dorian's life. Exactly. But feels no guilt. So I guess he does have a sort of immorality to him. He ultimately, yeah, exactly. But he ultimately fails to appreciate the profound meaning of Dorian's downfall upon life, life in general. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale, and he does not realize that whatsoever. Doesn't realize it. Doesn't even pick up on the message at all. Take a hit, man. <laughs> so we've kind of concluded with the character analysis of each character, of each of the, of the three main characters within this novel, and we wanted to provide some further information about them that's interesting to the novel as a whole. So despite the chronological progression or progress of this novel, the motif of flowers is Wilde's way of foreshadowing the tragedy he has in store for his characters. How dramatic. Exactly. Such a drama queen. He does it in a subtle way too. Like he doesn't eat, you can't like by reading it, understand it. But if you analyze the first page of the novel, you'll see that there are certain details because he loves details. He's such a, he, he loves details. He yeah. loves clues and hints and such. So he kind of uses certain imagery to foreshadow uh, certain traits about his characters. For example, Basil is associated with the flower or is associated with the rose due to his amorous and sort of romantic nature. And his studio at the beginning of the novel is described as being filled with the rich odor of roses. Lord Henry, on the other hand, is a yellow <laughs> laburnum. Okay, I've never seen this flower. I'm sure it's I'll nasty. You, I'll show you a picture. You know what? Actually, Google this picture if you can, listeners. Yellow laburnum. laburnum. I won't spell it, but try to understand. <laughs> and that is a poisonous plant synonymous with the word forsaken, which, of course, is a reflection of the way he literally poisons Dorian's perfect innocence with his corrupt and forsaken ways. And this flower, actually, little note, it was threatening and feared by the Victorians 
in Victorian in the Victorian era to receive these flowers as a gift or anything like that. So, yeah, Very Lord Henry. See, I told you it's not Basil who's at. Like, it's not Basil's fault, it's Lord Henry's. Okay, maybe that's how Wilde sees it, but I'm allowed to deviate from Wilde's perspective. Exactly. And finally, Dorian was associated with lilies, which usually symbolize purity and innocence, despite the fact that in the end he sells his soul to protect these qualities, a less than pure notion, if, in fact. I mean, yes, but honestly, I did not know about the, the the flowers thing whatsoever when I was reading. I did not catch on. Yeah, this was something that I did some further research about while I was doing a character study of this novel. But something like yeah. that is so interesting. It's like how many more things are, are, hidden? There, are hidden? Like these little Easter eggs that, you know, when you figure it out, you're just like, whoa. whoa. Exactly. And it's like so and, much insight. Exactly. Wilde was very intelligent and he loved to put these little clues out so that you could like catch them but if you're not if you're not aware of the context of victorian society these are hard to understand like how would you ever pick up on the idea that the yellow labyrinth is threatening in victorian society i wouldn't have but someone no. would read it then might have if they were smart enough to catch it i don't know but that just goes to show that the author of the novel you know if we could ask them then we would get the most insight of all because they probably know things that we cannot even fathom when reading a book like this exactly Thank you so much for listening to this lighthearted novel study. For those of you who haven't read The Picture of Dorian Gray, we suggest that you do so for your own shelf awareness. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for episode four, which discusses the poem, The Mirror by Sylvia Plath. The poem is short and we encourage you to read it before listening to the next episode.